0: iPhone 13. It's that time of year again. This is the time where I'm completely overwhelmed with creating as much content as I possibly can. And in all that, I end up making a little bit less. So uh, I'm glad to get this episode out. It's a little delayed. I've got Michael Tobin on to talk about some of the new features on the 13. Hey, Michael, how's it going?
1: Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, Always excited to talk iPhone stuff. And like you said, it's Techtober, the craziest time of year.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I don't even cover all the other brands, like, you know, everybody's making their announcements right now. I mean, even Amazon just had an event announcing hardware products. I'm like, I'm not even paying attention to any of that stuff. And I'm overwhelmed just focusing on Apple right now. So I can't imagine what tech YouTubers that actually cover all of this, uh, are experiencing right now. But, um, we both got some videos out. We, uh, uh, you know, I did my, my usual photographer's review of the iPhone 13, and then I, I split it up and also did a filmmaker's review because, It just just felt like there was a lot of new video focused stuff, especially the flagship feature of cinematic mode, which, um, you know, it's not it's not so much that it's flagship and like it's going to change everything, but it looks really cool. And I think to normal people, it's going to catch their eye maybe more than like what everybody else did with it. Um, The first video you got out was kind of similar filmmaking perspective. Like, how was that shooting the filmmaking review for you?
1: That was good. I mean, I agree with what I think you said in one of your videos that in so many past Apple events, it's like they kind of, you know, quickly talk about it, especially still photography has been a major focus the past couple of years. And so I was super stoked that this year, they finally really focused on video. And like you said, cinematic mode may not be the, you know, blow up the industry necessarily right off the bat, but it is a huge feature release. And so um. As soon as I, you know, finished watching the event, I, like many other creators, just passionately wanted to create as much content around that as possible. So it wasn't even, you know, I was happy that I wasn't like, didn't have to scratch my head this year. Like, okay, what am I going to talk about? Everyone's going to talk yeah. about, you know, the same two talking points or something. And we actually all had something to experiment with and look forward to with new features.
0: Yeah, actually, so that really is fun. a lot of the reason that I did the filmmaking one first is because I knew, I'm like, well, nobody has seen cinematic mode yet. We've only seen a few of Apple's uh, examples. So all I have to do is shoot something cinematic. And it, and that's <laughs> interesting, right? At this moment, that's interesting. In a few months, everybody will have seen cinematic mode a lot. And we know what it looks like. We know the, the good and the bad of it. But uh, on the day of release, uh, you know, I and everyone else is just hungry to be like, what does this look like? So um, yeah, my goal is just to get out there and shoot a cinematic sequence. And then talk a bit about it. But, um, well, because also,
1: like what you said in your video is that when we watch Apple's demo reel, obviously every DP and like every person who worked on that, their sole purpose was to make it look as good as possible. It's an Apple promo. And so when we all got our hands on it, it's like, okay, let's make something that looks good, but
0: also real world use. <laughs> yeah, totally. Cause it's hard to really judge it from what they're doing. I mean, having looked at their example next to ours, it's, it's not the same. There were, there were almost no moments in Apple's demonstration where I could see any issues. And in mine, it, you know, it's pretty clear. And I think that's a few things like it's definitely lighting was a big thing for them that they sort of structured things in a way that the backgrounds wouldn't interfere with the hair as much. And like, it was, it was set up in a way to look as perfect as possible. Um, and then for me, just being in a wild environment where I wasn't even directing people, like my video, people are just like on the beach wandering around and stuff. And in all those examples, well, first of all, I can't tell them where they're going to be and I can't tell them, okay, now look away, now look back to me and try to control that. So, um, that kind of messiness, I think, is going to be most people's reality, but it definitely did lead to more overall conflicts. And then uh, just to, like to wrap up the creating these videos, idea, it's like then the other right after that, as soon as I finished, I tried to get started on the photographer's review, which is like my biggest video every year. Basically, it's like pretty reliable that it usually is is what gets the most review reviews. Uh, and I, I mean, I was I was pretty happy with what we were able to do with it. We were able to get some really great photography for it. Like the samples ended up being pretty awesome. Um, look great. And and yeah, and I was able to shoot Thanks. I was I was really able to shoot like a lot. Like there's a really high volume before the video came out. Um, and at the same time, Marco was editing at the like while I was shooting. So we were able to kind of keep moving forward a little more quickly than or it ended up not being more quickly. It just ended up having more density in the same amount of time. Uh, compared to, compared to usual, cause there was a lot of photography that we did for it. And, um, uh, yeah, I would just say like overall, like it's, it, it's hard to keep these videos feeling new. Like we have had so many years of iPhone releases and probably all the biggest innovations in the camera are behind us, right? Like I really liked I haven't watched that many other people's videos yet, but um, the beginning of Marquez is he was saying, making the analogy of like, oh, this new Camry released every year, this new car released, whether you need it or not. And I'm like, that's how a lot of people should be thinking about this. Cause I just, I'm so tired of the comments of like, do, you know, it's, it's only been one year and the changes aren't big enough, or do we really need a new phone every year? And it's like, calm down, everybody. Like, of course they're going to make a new one. Um, it's only up to us, like, as, you know, like journalists or whatever, we really are to find the story. And, 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 you know, it's not up to Apple to like keep us entertained. It's more about like, what is there that is interesting in these new phones? Because I think there's actually a lot. Uh, I wasn't the only one to say this, but a lot of people have had the take that. This was kind of a bigger upgrade than the 11 to the 12, even though I don't think we fully acknowledge that.
1: Yeah, well, I think a lot of people, too, who may not necessarily understand all the super nerdy stuff only see the physical changes. And so they saw a bigger physical change from the 11 to the 12 again. And so when they don't see too much of a physical change this year, they're like, oh, well, you know, it's not that different. Um, and yelling percentages of bigger sensors or f stops and stuff to people who don't understand that stuff aren't going to realize, like, oh, from f, you know, 2.4 to 1.8 or whatever doesn't sound like much. So it really can't be that big of a deal. And it's not until they, kind of like in your last podcast, talking to the Apple engineers, um, you know, it, it's not until you actually use it that you're like, holy crap, this is like
0: really good. <laughs>
1: this is a really good yeah. camera.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay. Remind me to get back to that last podcast, because I want to talk about it for a second. But sure. but first, I'd love for you to introduce yourself a bit, because like if anybody hasn't seen your channel already, um, you know, what is it that you do? Like I've seen your videos about filmmaking. Um, you've covered a bunch mm-hmm. of the same gear that I use, so that's how I stumbled across it and then Recently, we are just testing ProRes on the iPhone 13. But other than YouTube, how how did you get into filmmaking? And what do you do other than YouTube?
1: Yeah, so uh, I actually always wanted to be a filmmaker. Obviously, when I was a kid, being a YouTuber, content creator wasn't really a thing. So I never really knew how I was going to do that, especially in the Midwest. You know, don't exactly have Hollywood out here. Um, But as the years went on, I always had a passion for um, technology And actually, right after high school, I ended up working for Apple for four or five years uh, in the retail space only. But that was a blast. And so my love for especially Apple and just technology in general, as well as filmmaking, continued to kind of grow in parallel. And around 2016, just started uploading YouTube, worked a couple marketing jobs and stuff. But the past, uh, uh, I guess, three years now, I've been doing pretty much content creation and then i do some commercial filmmaking on the side um kind of taking a break in the past year once covid hit and stuff Mm -hmm. uh kind of just focused on building up the channel and kind of really started being more consistent and more kind of full-time thinking about it last year and was able to get you know it took like four or five years to get to like 10k subscribers and then in the past year i've gone from 10 to uh now like 44 or something like forty forty three, 43
0: somewhere around there yeah which is awesome i mean i'd almost i guess take a quick tangent to talk about being in that stage of youtube because like i remember i remember being there too and it's funny because like i remember things like when i was around your size was i went on sarah dici's podcast um Mm. and it was funny because like she, she sort of mentioned during it that she was, that it was like, you know, I'm like a small, a smaller YouTuber. And it's funny because I was thinking about it like at the time, like, but I just grew by, by tens of thousands. Like this is, <laughs> I, you know, I'm doing great. I have more followers than anybody I know in real life. And it's so funny that scale of like what people consider small that like, yeah, when you get to 3000 or 5,000, it feels like, wow, like I am, I made it, you know, like I'm a YouTuber. I've got people following me. This is crazy. So then, yeah, to get to like 50,000 is like a serious accomplishment. And it's just like, I don't think we appreciate that scale all the time. It's true. And I mean, I always try to, anytime I like feel small
1: or like feel that that's an insignificant number that I'm at, I always think about like, if those people were in a room, it would feel very overwhelming to have, you know, even a thousand people in a room. And, uh, Yeah. So it's cool. And, and I mean, people very underestimate what, uh, you can be a full-time content creator with 5,000 subscribers, just as much as someone who has a million, not to have a long speech about audience size, but yeah.
0: (laughs) No, it's true. And there's other things about that. Like, um, there's become much less of a connection between subscriber numbers and views. And I was able to see that with like, so even on The channel for this podcast, which is separate from my main channel, I've had videos that did better than, you know, videos I released at the same time on the main channel. And that is weird, right? Like, it's like, you know, I got like 40,000 on the main channel and then like a video kind of, or sorry, 40,000 on the small channel views. And then a video bombed that same week on the main channel. And it's like okay and that's just to show that like the algorithm isn't all about subscribers and it's so much more focused on viewer signals um so i don't know if anybody's out there thinking like oh it's saturated i can't i can't be a youtuber now it's too late like oh it is not even close like you, youtube no. will push up good content so good content always wins and it's yeah, the hardest yeah, truth because so it's e- it's easy you're, to you're poke and blame it, so. everything else <laughs> yeah exactly um Cool. Well, yeah. So we, we got the, we got our videos out. Um, yeah. Where to start with it. I don't know. I mean, I feel like maybe we should split out starting with just talking about the regular iPhone a little bit. Cause I, uh, like I said, I, Oh no, I, I, I told you I was going to come back around to the last episode first. That's what I should be talking oh, about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, the last episode was a pretty cool opportunity, right? I mean, the, I, th- I think I said this in the intro, but like, if there was anybody you wanted to talk to about <laughs> camera design in the whole world, it's the, designers of the most influential modern camera, right? Like the iPhone is what is defining the way images look. So like, that was a, that was a really cool opportunity. And I just say, listening back to it, I'm like, I, I still wish that I had been able to hit more like actual real questions. And, uh, I, so I don't know. I mean, I hope, uh, there'd be some sort of similar opportunity again in the future. Cause like, there's so much to talk about, but obviously, the designers have like specific ideas of what they are excited about and what they worked on um so yeah it was just this this balance of like okay well i know you came on cuz you wanted to talk about the thing that you, you just announced <laughs> to the world uh but i really want to get you know some kind of well i mean i'd love to get exclusive info that nobody's ever talked about until they came on the podcast but the odds of that happening are low but um yeah still i mean it was just really cool having that like direct ability to actually have a conversation with them and you know, just hear it straight from the the people working on it directly. Cause, um, that's almost the question I wanted to ask the most is like, how does it actually feel to you to be influencing photography so much?
1: Yeah. And, and that's like you said, it's really cool to hear because a lot of times when we see a feature and we may wonder like why, and, and I know, uh, I think after you hopped off the call with them and you were kind of just speaking, uh, during your kind of outro bit, um, I believe you were talking about a couple of things that you thought were mistakes, like the flare issue. Like, I don't think anyone can really pass as like a feature. Like that's just purely Mm. like some bad optics that I know they're trying to work out and stuff. Um, I'm curious, was there anything that they talked about that really either like, not necessarily blew your mind, but gave you like really cool insight into how the mechanics work or just the reasoning why they chose certain things. The
0: I mean the there were things like that I hadn't thought about previously, like the um reasons for moving the stabilization to the sensor, um being connected to the weight of the lens, I think is really like an interesting idea and something you don't think about. If you look at iFixit's its teardowns and you see the actual camera mechanisms being pulled out of the iPhone 12 and being pulled out of the 13, the size difference really jumps out at you. Like it, the, each lens is much taller because they hide like in the design of a you know a modern iPhone they hide the height by leveling them all out so all three lenses look about the same size but the true internals each one is a very different size depending on the lens mm. and the telephoto is much taller and you know you can you can see the size difference inside and you can see that there is a bigger total uh not vol, uh, like square area, you know, volume for the whole, for the whole unit inside. It's, it's also just taking up more space inside the whole iPhone case, um, because of the larger sensors, which I, I, I believe all of them are larger, maybe not the, um, telephoto. Somebody tried to correct me on this on the video. Actually, they're saying the ultra wide is not a new sensor and a, I double checked and it it is actually a new sensor on the pro. Yeah. So uh they are larger physical sensors as well. And you can just, yeah, you can see that like it, there's this like jump in size. And I want to know if they'll this, I mean, this is the kind of question I'd like to ask them actually, is like, would is there a point, can you foresee the point now where the physical size of the camera will sort of plateau? And it's like, okay, we can't get any bigger than this. So now all the improvements need to come with either improved improved sensors, improved lenses, or improved software um, because we mm. can't get any bigger with the size. And I bet we haven't hit it yet. Like, I don't mind how much bigger the camera's got. So uh, no. I don't know. Like, what about you? Did well, you notice the thickness? Not when I saw the
1: keynote and stuff. It wasn't until I literally was at the Apple store and was holding my 12 Pro Max next to the new 13 Pro Max that I was like, oh, wow. Like, it's the same design. And so I understand why people say, like, it looks the exact same. But in person, you can clearly see the size difference, to me at least. Um, But I am curious, on that topic, would you rather hit that limit and keep the size roughly the same or maybe a little bit bigger if they can improve, but then mostly improve through like computational photography type stuff like the cinematic mode? Or would you be into some sort of solution, almost like what was it Motorola tried years ago with like the whole attachments on the back? Because like I would love one day to have like a super 35 sensor or at least like a micro four thirds uh, sensor on a phone. That would be ridiculous, but
0: that would look really cool. I think me and probably everybody listening to this are not the average opinion. And we'd all take like, I just want a, you know, I want to look like a Leica. Like I just want a big fat, (laughs) I just want to be a camera uh, that I can make phone calls on. Uh, Not actually. I mean, there is a limit. Definitely haven't hit it yet. I mean, I feel like uh, you could throw another millimeter on there and I'd still totally be happy with it. Like, but I don't know. There's those rumors, the iPhone 14, you know, who knows how accurate they'll end up (laughs) being a year from now, but they are adding, if you haven't seen the images, like the ideas that they're going to add thickness to the, Whole phone everywhere, and that'll kind of bury the the camera sensors inside of the the rest of the casing right so that mm. it'll you'll perceive the phone as being flat they've still got all the size of those lenses, but the whole phone is significantly thicker and I mean yeah if I look at how much thicker that would have to be it's it's a lot I think yeah. that'd be worth it though like that makes me think of like what red was doing with their you know hydrogen phone that went nowhere. Um, it's big and chunky, but it's for professionals. I'm like, that could be an iPhone pro to me for the pro anyway. I mean, the mini probably shouldn't do this, but yeah, I could take a big chunky pro. I'd be happy with that.
1: Yeah. And that means bigger battery. And like you said, in your videos, we need bigger batteries. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Keep them coming.
0: (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Flipboard, a great resource for learning more about your next iPhone or photography or filmmaking or whatever it is you want to learn about. But those are the things that I like to use it for. Flipboard is a very simple to use tool that gives you basically a magazine-like experience for all of the different content you might want to enjoy on the internet. So for example, I follow a few different topics on there, like just technology in general, uh, Apple, of course, photography and cinematography, and I get targeted information that has a beautifully displayed layout so that there's big images and big headlines. It's easy and fun to browse through. And I can discover new things in a way that I I really can't find on many other websites. So it's suggesting material to me based on what their editors curate, but I can also follow people individually. So for example, you could follow me. I'm Stallman on Flipboard. Go to flipboard.com slash Stallman, and you'll see the things that I've been flipping to different boards that I like. So these are just articles that I found useful for all sorts of different topics. And I think that you could probably find useful too. It's got a really easy to use interface too. This is part of the fun of it is like, as you're going through it, you just have this flipping experience with your thumb. That is just like, you know, really easy and comfortable to move through. And then when you click into articles, you get this great reading experience and viewing experience. It's just a great way to interact with any kind of content that you're looking for. So head over to flipboard.com Stallman. Like I said, you should be following in there because I'm posting great stuff all the time. And they do have a bunch of new photography sections with brand new kinds of content. I'm going to talk about that a bit on YouTube. So keep an eye on it in future videos. But until then, thanks again, Flipboard for supporting the show. Well, so uh, it's a good place to, to get into specifics about the the, the regular 13 and the mini, because I actually have a lot less to say about these. Like they are, they're a little closer to the incremental upgrade that I think we often talk about, or a lot of the, you know, the mainstream reviews, like the New York Times had a, like the most, it was like the most incremental upgrade yet or something was the headline. Like, okay, depends what you're looking at. But, um, but they were c- closer to that. The, the regular 13s, um, Are are less exciting, but the increments are meaningful as well. I think maybe the biggest one is that now the Mini, 13 Mini, is so much more of a practical choice for a lot of people because of that additional battery life and because it has the same wide camera as everything else. So you've got the camera that was in the Pro Max last year and the battery life of the Pro last year or or of the 12 last year, um, which is. amazing right like that's fixing a lot of if you had problems with the mini it probably was that okay it doesn't have the best possible camera and it doesn't have great battery life and those are massively improved and so to me now the choice the most interesting choice to me now is between the mini and then kind of skipping the regular 13 and going straight to the pro and then if screen size is important the pro max but um whereas with the 12 i think last year there was really a sweet spot with that regular 12. Like, you know, you'd, you'd save some money. You weren't getting that many huge feature jumps when you went to the 12 pro, uh, you're getting a telephoto lens, but the, you know, the ultra wide was the same. So, uh, and, and, a bunch of other features that we'll get into that, uh, you, you weren't gaining by going to the pro now, the, uh, the pro jump from the 13 to 13 pro is, um, significant like there's, there's a lot there, so all of a sudden it's to me the interesting choices to people that are in this audience are like the mini if you're into that size which I love I actually really enjoy using the mini um it just the battery life killed it for me and and that was I mean that was a lot of it honestly and now all yeah. of a sudden it's like well yeah you know if that's the form factor for you then you can feel better about it and if you need the performance you just go straight for the regular pro
1: yeah it's true and uh, I know you also talked about it in your uh, when you were talking to the engineers and it's what I'm a super fan of, which is kind of leveling the playing field to where you don't have to like feature nitpick to buy the right phone for you. So putting the better camera or or at least the, the camera that is in uh, most of the other phones and then now it's just like, oh, what size do I want or, you know, a couple other features that are easy. It always goes back to I used to always talk about this when I worked at Apple in the stores. As I remember, Steve Jobs. Hey, this is the anniversary of his death. Oh, rest. Oh, in peace. that's right. Um, uh, you know, he, I remember him coming back from Apple in the '90s and eliminating most of the products. And he drove that four quadrants, where it was like consumer and professional, and basically you get a laptop, and then professionals get a laptop, and then consumer desktop, consumer, and obviously we added phones and tablets. But I've always liked that mentality of like a consumer kind of majority of people version and then a professional version and not to have too many kind of sub uh, categories in that or else it just gets too confusing and too chaotic and you start to get these very confusing upgrades and so I very much like having a really good consumer device, you know the mini and the regular, the mini and the smaller pro, and then you know have like the crazy pro max or or even the regular pro now um and then again, just choose the size you like yeah it
0: it also feels like a very Steve Jobsy or just an Apple thing to have it be that like I think right now we're finally at a place where there there isn't a bad iPhone you can choose. The only reason we really were at that before is when, wait, can, can I remind myself, what is the base model? I, th- I think they moved it up to 128, and I just want to be sure of that before I go on. Um, yes, I believe so. That I am not, I'm not misremembering. When it was, the base model could be 64 gigs. That was too small for a lot of years. So you sort of could buy the wrong iPhone. Now you kind of can't. Like, they're all great. Right. So uh, whether you go with the mini all the way up to the pro max, like everything is awesome. And that's, you know, that is what you want to feel when you go into, you know, what is effectively like a not not quite, but almost luxury store. Like it's a premium experience buying from Apple and you don't want to feel like you could walk away with a lemon and you really can't this year, you know, so I think it's pretty great. Um, You went with the pro max though is that is that right
1: yeah (laughs) i always have like uh, yeah whatever is the best battery life and the best camera like i mean obviously for what i do the camera is the most important thing even if i'm not shooting for youtube just like in my personal life it's i'm just kind of a little ocd about always capturing the highest quality i can um which where I ran into issues with ProRes already, but talk about that later. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, we'll get to ProRes towards the end because that's that's something that was like your exclusive that nobody else had really seen yet. So, um, but let's hit on the the main camera a little bit more because that is that's still common to all of them. Is that yeah. upgrade that uh, at first I had thought was basically just adding the sensor from last year because last year they said forty seven percent more light in the Pro Twelve Pro Max. And then this year they said the same thing about that same lens in all of them. So I was like, okay, it's yep. the same. Turns out it is a little bit different. And uh, I I know, I know saw a couple of samples where I was like, okay, it's a little bit it's a little bit better, um, but similar. So the, the fact that you're now getting the best possible camera from last year in every single one, um, and you know it, it, it is visibly better as well. Like there aren't. In, again, this is getting to the point where in the daylight. There's not a lot of examples where you see it i do find you can see it in um bokeh though like that larger sensor does blur Mm -hmm. out more if you're kind of close to a subject and then in lower light i mean it was it was really there and the the best example actually i screwed up the labels in my filmmaking video which is always my biggest fear it's one of the most worried about and i I, so I i triple checked them in the in the photography video i don't think i made those mistakes but in the filmmaking one, I had a low light example of the 12 and the 13 side by side. And what you could really see that really jumped out wasn't so much about the noise. It was that the HDR continued working as the light went further and further down. So the highlights were still preserved. Yeah. And this was in a video um, when when it was like completely dark, right? Like So there was like light shining on the side of the building. Again, so people were commenting like, "Well, why does the why does the 12 look better than 13?" Well, it's my mistake because I mixed up the labels. <laughs> now, <laughs> um, but like you really just you can see it like it's 100 percent there, and the 13 looks like that that HDR that you expect out of a modern iPhone, uh, whereas the 12, it's like oh, okay, we've pushed it a little past the limits and it's it's falling apart a bit here. So,
1: see, and I I didn't even really think of this as a feature until I was listening to your last uh, podcast episode where. Because I agree that when I was first taking photos um, on the 13 Pro Max, I was like, okay, like, you know, it's not groundbreakingly different, but I can see some improvements. But then when I heard the engineers talk about how they can capture the same amount of detail and the same amount of light in less time, I was like, mm-hmm. okay, actually that is a benefit. So even if the final result doesn't look drastically different, the newer phone captured the same result in less time. So less time you have to stand there and have a steady hand or, you know, a lot of times when I'm doing night stuff, or I mean, I have two little kids, so I don't really have three seconds to make someone sit still and take a photo or something. So the shorter duration is actually a huge benefit now that I think about it.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was something I was seeing in the tests in my photography video was that night mode, for example, would expose less time and would also switch over to night mode um, less often. So you wouldn't need a long exposure uh, to, to shoot in low light. You would just stay in deep fusion and end up with like an overall sharper image without switching to that long exposure. And a funny thing I noticed in that testing period as well, um, and it's not what I'm saying out loud. If you watch the video, it's the, you have to look at what I wrote on screen because I only realized this after sitting at the computer and looking through the meta, metadata that like, you know, when it was saying that it was like one or three second exposures, um, what it reports back in the metadata was like a fifth of a second. And I think what's happening is that because the, the way night mode has always seemed to work, this is new, but is that it'll capture a the fastest image it can right away of the brightest part. Um, hopefully that's usually the person. And then it draws out a longer exposure of every darker part of the scene and like lifts all the shadows. And you can always see it while it's developing, especially if you have something with a big difference. Like the example I first saw it on with the, I think it was with the 11, there was a house on a lake at night, right? So stars over top, like pitch black around this house, but the lights are on in the house. And you could see this, like it would instantly, you know, catch the house and the house is sharp and then you just watch the next 30 seconds as the stars start to get brighter and brighter and brighter as the exposure gets longer. And, um, so I think it's reporting on that fast exposure, that initial like capture of the sharpness, and then it's adding detail in, um, as it stays open longer. So anyway, the point of all that is to say that, uh, you'll end up seeing different exposure numbers when you first start to capture your your night mode. Um, and then you'll also have a, a faster shutter speed, like you were just saying, um, which is a big advantage. It's There's crazy. also other things like lower, you're able to, they're able to raise the ISO higher and have the same amount of noise. So again, if you just like look at the, um, what's happening in the metadata there, like that's often what it is, is that they're they're bumping the ISO, but you don't see a quality difference because it can handle more. And um, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Do you end up doing like much, more photo or video with your phone, typically?
1: Uh, I would say more video, but I've been trying to get back into photography. That's where my roots are in. I, I did still photography for probably five or six years before I ever started really getting into video. And, you know, especially years ago, pho- mobile photography wasn't very good. But now I'm definitely trying to get into it. I will say, like I like I said before, I always get ruined by the best quality stuff. And a while back ago, um, a rental house lent me a Hasselblad for a couple weeks. And so now when I take still photographs on like anything, I'm just like, oh, that would have looked really good on medium format. But I will say that it, uh, the still photography that you get on this looks very good. And I was happy when I watched your still photography video uh, or your photographer's review how you pointed out the contrast in the lower lights is better. Cause I like low light stuff and I was happy to see that didn't all look like washed out HDRE, you know, kind of just flat images. They really added back in the contrast. Um, but I am curious uh, if I can get more thoughts on you talked about in, I believe it was the photographer one, maybe it was the video one about how, the balance of this stock camera app having too many or too little like features and buttons uh, for like pro control. Do you wish for like a pro mode? Cause I know a lot of Android phones when I've done tests on Samsung devices, they have pro mode. Sony Xperia has the best pro mode for video in their stock camera app. Do you like having only third party like Halide or filmic for video? Or do you wish that the stock camera app had more, uh features or buttons. I know you mentioned white balance,
0: but yeah, yeah, I mean I I am a primarily user of the stock camera app. I like Halide for being able to override stuff, um especially like white balance, but I'm it it just has a bunch of sort of like those polished features that help you like really perfect a shot, but I don't need to do that too often, so uh, I'm not shooting in Halide super often. Um and then Filmic uh which, you know, it's awesome that they worked with you on this. I've worked with them before. They do a lot of amazing stuff. They're a great company. The interface of filmic pro is such a mess. I don't like, I don't enjoy shooting with it. They've got all of the features I want. Like I want all that, those manual controls, but I find it so confusing to actually use that. um, I don't know. It's hard. (laughs) It's, it's hard for me to actually get that very often. Uh, Like I I I, actually, I'm staring at a lot of the time. Like I don't, I know the change I want to make. I don't know what to do with the interface. I don't know where to touch.
1: Yeah, I I totally get that. And and what's funny is I I am actually with you on that. I mostly use the stock camera app, especially because of just the shortcuts, whether it's on the lock screen or swipe down from the control center or whatever. Um, It's just faster access than a lot of the third party apps and faster load times. And for the majority of things I'm, I'm shooting, it's, it's great. Um, I would like a little bit more Pro features in the stock camera app, or at least like Pro mode to control like shutter, because the exposure knob, I don't know, sometimes just doesn't get perfect. Um, but yeah, the, and with filmix interface, I just watched Patrick Tommaso's video on that, and he was ripping it apart too. Yeah. Um, and it's fine. I, most of Filmix app I'm fine with, just because I've used it enough now in the beginning, it was very frustrating, but I've used it so much in the past year or two doing these videos that it's kind of second nature. The one thing that I do think is terrible and I've given them feedback on it is uh, just the ISO and the shutter speed wheel. Um, that That's where it kind of falls apart. But everything else is just like any new software. You just once you get used to it, you get used to it. But right. It,
0: yeah subjective well yeah and then coming back to the stock camera app to apple's camera app um i I mean i think they've done generally done a better job than most other apps like it stays pretty easy to use for most people it's getting deeper and more complicated but um yeah that's one thing i was gonna say button i don't know uh
1: since they now that cinematic mode is here this was the first year that as i was swiping over to cinematic mode and then i wanted i was up in the seattle space ne- needle because we were visiting i was like oh i want to do a panorama and so i had to swipe to panorama mode and i had to swipe so much because now there's so many like modes <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so i was like huh i wonder when they're going to finally add like a drop down menu or something like the uh other because i do agree that there are a lot of android phones that have way too gimmicky modes to shoot in mm-hmm. um But there is quite a lot to swipe through between slow motion, cinematic, regular photo, video,
0: and then panorama and whatever else there is. Yeah. I mean, when I think of the Android phones, I don't want to end up there because I think they do so much worse of a job. Like, I just I want to not get near it. But but that is part of it. Like you're saying, a lot of the extra features are total gimmicks and are not going to get used. And at least with Apple, still most of them are mostly things we use. Sometimes, yeah. right? There's not that many features in there that I never touch. Probably the only ones are um, in portrait mode, the different lighting options. Never. Yeah. Open. I never use any of those. <laughs> That's um, true. But that might be that might be just about it. Like everything else is still pretty useful. What What I could really use, though, is a better way of setting the exposure while I'm in the app. Because the best example is that as you touch different parts of the image, Even if they look like the exposure is the same, you'll end up getting something completely different. And even worse, if you have, let's say, you want to retain the sky. You want to keep it exposed correctly, and you've got a subject that is close to the front of the camera. If I just lower the exposure, it will sometimes make the subject darker, but the skies still clip. So I could easily, I could just touch the skies. Now the skies fully recover. HDR can figure it out. All of the exposure looks correct but it also sets the focus on the sky and my subject is not in focus, even though their exposure can look good. So that's often the best way to set my exposure is just touching the sky, but it throws the focus off. So I don't have a way yeah. of splitting that. And so that's a reason to go to other apps like Calide. Um, I would love that. See, to and that's a where, somehow, uh, but.
1: yeah, that's where the, almost the interface that I used to hate on filmic pros, uh, if they could bring it to, cause they have an exposure circle yes, and then a split. focus square.
0: Yeah so it, the thing is that but in Apples because yeah there are there's there's obviously like three or four different things going on with exposure it's not linear like on a regular camera where you just go up and down because of the way smart hdr is interacting it's like true. there's crazy different ways of interpreting every single scene where you know you can boost the shadows this much and you can bring the highlights down this much and it's there's always like five different interpretations available within the iPhone depending what area you touch on and they would all be like the same exposure but they're blending in different parts of the image differently and right now it's a bit of a black box not being able to access those types of HDR interpretation but Apple's yeah. still doing the best job of it so I I don't know. I don't know. I I guess what I'm saying is I want more options, but I also want it to be simplified. So this episode is brought to you by privacy.com. We've all been there when you're going through your bank statements or credit card statements at the end of the month, and you're trying to figure out what little payments were that you don't quite remember. And there's that little bit of stress where you're like, was this me? Did I do this? Like what's actually going on here? And then you have to go to the effort of tracking it down Privacy.com can help with that. It's a tool that makes it easier to manage your financial lives online while keeping your most important information secure. By generating virtual numbers, privacy masks your bank information, so you never have to worry about giving it out to people you don't know online. Think about other personal information like your phone number. Whenever I fill out a form and have to put my phone number in there, I'm like, okay, what list am I going to end up on and how many prank calls am I going to get? Same thing with your banking information. You don't know who is going to end up accessing that in the end. So that's a good reason to be using a service like privacy. So take back control of your payments. Decide who can charge your card, how much and how often, and you can close cards at any time. Plus, you can make sure that you never accidentally get billed twice or you upgrade to another service without your consent. And privacy is partnered with the good folks at 1Password so you can create, use, and save privacy cards directly within your 1Password dashboard. All virtual cards created in 1Password have the same security benefits as your other privacy cards, and you can set spend limits, create single-use, or merchant-locked cards whenever you want. So head to privacy.com slash Stallman and sign up for an account. New customers will automatically get $5 to spend on your first purchase. Again, head over to privacy.com slash Stallman and sign up now. And thanks again to privacy for their support of the show. Um, but yeah. okay. So another thing that would be worth hitting uh, another new feature is photographic styles. I thought this was really, I, I totally understand why they added this feature. After using it, there aren't a lot of implementations in it that I find are going to be really useful to me. Um, I like that in rich contrast, it will. It seems to want to like bring down the sky a bit. like it, it darkens parts of the image in a way that I find kind of pleasing and maybe will end up using a little. But overall, I wasn't looking at the... And again, if anybody missed the explanation of it, the way to think about photographic styles is it's like if you shoot in RAW and you use Lightroom, you when you lightroom has to interpret all of that raw data there's no there's a default interpretation that you could use but you can always change it and you can warm up the image or you can add vibrance or whatever you want and when you export it it gets baked into the jpeg and that's the final thing with an iphone there is like a raw stage that we just is kind of invisible to us at the beginning it is adding the adjustments in that pipeline while the image is still raw and uninterpreted so that's a good idea um i just found there execution of it to be uh it's sort of like I, I think it's trying to get closer towards what, you know, Android other people have said this. I'm obviously not the first one, but it's getting closer to what Android and Pixel are doing so that if you or sorry, Google, so that if you are more into that style of this slightly like over oversaturated and, and very contrasty look, like you can just have that all the time. It's just gonna be baked into all of your images. And then there's no reason to say that, uh, the, you know, Android phones are, are more contrasty or whatever. Cause it's, that is a sub or not a subjective interpretation. That is a creative choice that's being made. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I get why they did it. I probably am not going to use it a lot. Um, I might kind of stick with something Yeah. where there's like a, you know, 10 or 20% of that rich contrast added to it. And that's probably all I'm going to do. Did you try it out?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest, I treated it very similar to, like, we were just talking a couple minutes ago about the different lighting styles. Um, and, you know, when the update first came out, played with it, went through them, and I was like, to be honest, I kind of like just the natural thing, um, the natural look that the iPhone has. I That's, anytime I've looked at Android phones, I've always hated how oversaturated or contrasty or anything, like, I've always liked the balance that iPhones have standard. Um like you said, I see why it's there. I can see why people you know some people like it and use it, but for me, I just keep it the normal stock kind of profile and then make any changes I want in lightroom or darkroom so yeah I haven't those... used it to any
0: extent, but yeah, yeah. just yeah, I mean around. I was even saying in it that like i you know what I'd use more often is if there's a log profile <laughs> it's like if it just make it even flatter and maybe I'd use that so that I could grade it further later but, um, yes. but yeah i' I'm, I'm, i I'm gonna tread lightly uh using photographic styles even though yeah idea the idea is interesting or if you i mean this is stupid they shouldn't do this but what would be interesting to me is if you could like inject your own photographic styles in there that you've actually designed so like there's certain things that i so that i could do something more like um the the most successful versions of this i've seen so far are fuji and actually i was shooting with uh, Leica quite a bit on this trip. Um, Jason, my friend that was traveling with us, brought a like a Q and mm-hmm. shot a bunch on that. And and it has like a it has a look to it. It's a little more, it has more character than say a Canon or, or Sony have by default. And um, same with Fuji has a very strong look to it. Simbrush that's been on this show a lot of times, has talked about how he shoots straight to JPEG for his work in the New York Times. Um, and it, when you can add a character that really has an interesting personality and then bake it in like that can be really worth it. And you don't end up editing the photos often. So like I might do that if I could, where I would probably just like, I'd make the skies like a little bit more cyan and a little bit darker. And then I'd make, I don't know. I'd, I'd push the oranges to be a tiny bit more magenta and like, I don't, you know, just like make these little tiny tweaks yeah. that still mostly look normal, but they'd be have a bit of the, what I think of as a film look, and then I'd shoot that all the time. Apple yeah. just didn't do anything that is the look that I would do all the time. So,
1: when I think that's what, when they first announced it, it kind of seemed, and you know, everyone was going crazy on Twitter about what all the new features were. I saw some people talk about how, like, oh, you can like create your own LUTs with this. And there was almost like confusion. And it wasn't, yeah. I even wasn't that clear listening to Apple talk about it. So, when the finally came out to play with on the iOS update, And I saw its kind of limitations with that. I was like, okay, so it's not that it's not like what you just described, which I I agree would be cool because there are a lot of people who have developed their own look. And like I could see someone like Peter McKinnon or something just like having his Peter McKinnon, you know, iPhone, what LUT or whatever and and just shoot straight to that and have a baked in awesome image or something.
0: Well, and I know from a more mainstream perspective, like on um, on the talk show last week, uh, Gruber was talking about that there's, uh, you know, he was seeing with Austin Evans in his review talked about that he had a bit of a look that he was going to keep using with his photographic styles that he dialed in and they talked about it's like, oh, so everybody could have their own look that they pass around and, you know, get other, and maybe other people could download it or you could just tell people to set your settings like this. But there's not that many variables. Like you, you, you just can't change it that much anyway. So I don't know. I, I don't see that being a big part of the future of photography. Um, okay. Anyway, let's let's get to the pros because, um, yeah, the the 13 Pro and the Pro Max are like they're the ones this year. I mean, anybody listening to this show, I feel like that's probably what you want. Like the 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 difference is pretty noticeable. There are some really fantastic features that are super worth it this year, um, which, yeah, like I said, OK, I'm just going to say it again, that if screen size, if you like that small screen size, you can now be happy with the mini. But there are so many features in the pros that it is just so clearly the phone that I'm going to be using this year. Um, the one I can go over quickly is like the um, variable refresh rate, 120 hertz. Uh, I showed it to my wife, Anya, and I'm like, do, do you see this? Like, do you see a difference in these two screens? And she's like, no, I don't see it. <laughs> and I've heard from other people that they don't see it. So it's not, if you don't know what it looks like, if you don't know what to look for, you may not find it. Um, did how, did it jump out at you? Like, how did you feel about it? It's fine, because I never really cared for 120 hertz screens. Like,
1: uh, I think the uh, some Samsung device earlier this year, the OnePlus 9 Pro was the first time uh, having a device full-time and i was like it's nice i get why people like it i never really minded and i think apple's always been had pretty much the best 60 hertz screens out there so i did notice it i definitely felt it as soon as i turned on the device i'm like whoa there's the pro motion screen mm-hmm. but um i don't know for me i'm like in the middle it's nice if they removed it i wouldn't cry um but you know it's perfectly fine that it's here how about you
0: yeah, I mean I'm so I'm still using my twelve as my like full time phone. Right now I haven't transitioned over. So I'm still like looking back and forth at both of them. And it's funny because I don't I don't notice when I go back. So I go back to the 12 and I don't notice like, oh, this looks choppy. It still works fine. But I notice when I pick up the 13 and I scroll and I flip through a whole bunch of photos. I'm like, oh, that is so smooth. Like it yeah. it is a hundred percent visible to me. It's very perceptible. And I think that's really interesting about it, too, is that this seems to be a lot of the reason for the improved battery life. Um, And now I'm just going off of what other people said, but it seems like because there is this ability to. So, yeah, I mean, you're at 120 when you scroll quickly, but then once you settle on a static page, it goes down from 120 refreshes per second all the way down to 10. So now, I mean, that's very helpful for a screen to not need to be refreshing that often. And then the massive improvements are if you're streaming video or playing back video, a lot of video is at 24, 25 or 30 frames per second, which is basically nothing. It's half of the usual 60. So because of that variability, that's a lot of why we're seeing the improved battery rate, uh, times like that it just lasts longer because it doesn't have to do as much and the screen is so much of the draw on the battery in the first place. So there's kind of these hidden benefits of it as well even at times that the visual look is the same it's doing something that helps in your actual in your daily performance of the phone as well. So
1: that's funny cuz I guess I didn't really think about that because when last week I was filming so much test footage even with like the ProRes HQ stuff that I thought was going to destroy the battery and in, in the couple hours that I was filming with it, it like barely touched the battery, and I always film at 24. and so I wonder if that is a reason, because I feel like on my 12 pro Max, which obviously was a 60 hertz screen, um, when I filmed a lot, it ate through that battery really quickly. So that's really interesting. never really thought about yeah, it there's, like that.
0: There's all these efficiencies with it. It's also um, there, there's some stuff that like some Max tech. YouTube channel has been talking about the uh, they've been doing some of the tests that I'd like to do more scientifically because I only saw it in the real world. But things like screen dimming, which has been a big issue, especially if you're in a hot place that like your screen, if you're doing anything intensive, is going to get dim after some amount of time. And in my use, just like, you know, I was outside in Hawaii, so it was like hot and you know, the screen is gonna dim eventually, but I was holding both I was using the 12 right next to the 13, and the 12 would typically dim sooner than the 13. Um, mm. but in Max Tech's tests, they were able to see that like with gameplay, um if you operate in low power mode, you're able to get way more bad or basically have it never dim. The performance, hmm. the f- the frame rate and all of the performance metrics stay the same, um, but your screen stays bright the whole time. So low power mode might be the way to go. If you're just if you're doing photography in general, like I, I actually don't know what you'd be giving up uh, necessarily. Yeah. It seems like that's cool. If you could. Yeah, if you keep the screen bright longer, like that's super valuable. It's, it's actually still one of the. It's something I I guess I've never talked about in a review and is worth mentioning though, but like dimming screens is a huge problem when you're shooting with an iPhone. Like there are times that it's like all of a sudden in the middle of a shoot, because sometimes we're doing iPhone only shoots. It's like, oh, I can't see, I can't see the screen at all anymore. Even if I cover it up, it's so dark. That, you know, it's it's basically you're going to see it until it cools down a little bit. So yeah, just throw an ice pack on it. <laughs> I, it's true. Sometimes though. I'm very I'm very tempted to yeah. But going along further, that like here here's why the the Pro is the choice this year. Uh, we've also got the new Ultra Wide, the bigger sensor and lens inside of either the 13 Pro or 13 Pro Max, not available in the others. I, I actually can't see what the upgrade like Apple says there is an update to the Ultra Wide in the 13. I don't know what it is. Like the the specs are the same. The results look the same. There is a visible difference. Uh, It it does look better. I was hoping for it to like jump out at me in a way that it didn't, especially considering how much better the numbers are. Like the aperture is much faster. The sensor is, has like a, a larger pixels per capture. And then the results I was like, yeah, it's better. I can shoot in, lower light but it's not keeping up with the wide that's what I that, and basically that's what I thought based on what they had said I'm like oh it'll be like you know be like shooting on the regular wide lens of maybe an iPhone 11 right mm. and it, it's just not quite I don't know what was your experience with it
1: yeah I definitely agree with that it's it's better like in super low light on the ultra wide on my 12 Pro Max it was anything I shot with it was just unusable for anything more than like I technically captured that image or video Mm -hmm. um now it's like okay you know i can use this now i'd say it's like decent for like the home video like i'm recording something on my phone but i anything that would borderline professional work i wouldn't use it in low light especially for video like you talked about in your video how in still photography there's so many things you can do to clean up an image uh in low light but in video there's only so much post-processing you can really do before it's just straight mud um yeah and so yeah it's i i noticed the improvements it's definitely better but like you exactly said it didn't jump out of me like wow that's amazing it's still like oh it's low light i'm gonna stick to the wide angle <laughs>
0: i also recorded photos just the bet. yeah i recorded some nighttime um like vlogging tests on that ultra wide that didn't make it into the final cuts so and we saw them but what i saw in that is um basically that most of the image looked basically the same. This is comparing the 12 pro and the 13 pro on the ultra wide, pretty similar looking image, except that the blacks were able to like the darkest parts of a dark image were able to be lifted noticeably without raising any noise. So, um, and then again, a little bit of that, like the HDR was able to operate a little bit more so it could keep highlights a little less clipped. Um, so basically, yeah, it was like extending that dynamic range a bit, but keeping a kind of similar nose noise profile. And that's in video again, when like the least processing is happening, uh, once we do some more ProRes tests on it, we'll probably have a better sense of what's really, really happening in there. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Anyway, it's like, I'm only disappointed because of my expectations. It is still better, uh, which is good. And what I asked for. Oh, pfft, macro. Yeah, of course. Okay. So macro is one of the best things about this. It, it really is. It's a, and I was literally forgetting this. This is so much of the reason that like, if you're into photography, this is why you go for the pro this year. Like y- you will be so sad watching everybody else's macro photos showing up and that you can't take them. It was the thing that all of a sudden, like we were just looking at every object around us and we are lucky to be in a place where there's a ton of flowers on all the trees. So we got all these flower macros. It's awesome. It's it's like a good macro. So it's good. not perfect, but it's it's yeah, it's very good. Had you shot macro much before this?
1: Not a super lot. And I have like a uh so I use all irix cine lenses on my main cameras, and so I have a 150 macro. And anyone who does normal macro knows that everything is very compressed except for the subject. And what's interesting about this is since it's an ultra wide lens, it gives very similar vibe to the Laowa 24 millimeter probe lens, which is really fun to shoot. And we've all seen it in commercials and used um, for very like creative things because it's, it's a macro, but it's an ultra wide. Mm -hmm. So you still have perspective of the entire um, atmosphere of the area as well. And so I agree that I think it's going to open up a whole new world and the quality is just so good. I mean, in my video, I'd like just put my finger up to the lens and, got like five comments of people trying to steal my identity through my fingerprint. Yeah, right. um, I knew that was coming, um, but the, it's incredibly sharp. I understand people's weariness. I'm curious on your thoughts on like how there's no macro mode. So if you're just in your regular wide lens, then, and you get really close to something, it kind of transitions. I know Marquez pointed it out that it, the jump is kind of weird, but I think that can be like in a simple software update whether they separate the modes or just make that transition smoother or more apparent that you're switching lenses hasn't really bothered me too much um
0: yeah but i I think sort of a common take like a few people mentioned it yeah especially starting with marquez and it didn't bother me at all like i didn't even think about it until he pointed it out and then still using it afterwards i didn't find myself There were a few times where I found myself not being able to get it to switch over. Um, the best example was actually, I was trying to take macro shots of the phone. Um, and it was, and it's reflective. So it would think that I was trying to focus far away because in reflection, the actual focus distance is the distance of what's being reflected. Right? So if you're close up to a mirror, the point of focus is not the, you know, the one inch away from the mirror that you are. You could be touching the mirror, but the point of focus is still as far away as the objects are in that reflection. So when I get my macro close up to a piece of glass, like the back of an iPhone, it's trying to focus on the sky reflected in the background or the trees or whatever. And it doesn't know that I'm actually looking at something close up. It just doesn't understand that it thinks I'm looking at something, the distance of the reflection. So that was the time. To- that was the one time that was like, Oh, I can't override it. This is driving me crazy. So, um, I, you know, I, I do think that an override is, um, it should be somewhere. But for a normal user, I think the way that they did it probably is the right call and is what people want most of the time. And, well, and it'll probably end up being
1: something like what we talked about earlier, where it's it's a good setup for the stock camera app. And then as long as apps like Halide have access right to do it, they can make their own separate macro mode. So if you're in that one off situation, then you can override it.
0: Yeah. And also say in terms of video, um, I don't don't know if I really included any macro video samples because it's really hard to hold still enough. And this is (laughs) this is about macro. It's not about the phone, but like think the movement is very exaggerated. So it's really hard to shoot macro video without tripods. Um, And if you're shooting plants, which is what I was doing, like it was such cool shots. Like I wanted to include them. Yeah. I had ants crawling around that were like, they're like half the size of the ants we have here. Like all the ants in Hawaii are, are like tiny, tiny. Mm. And they would look giant of course, cause it's macro. Um, but I, I wanted to record videos of it, but like the, the leaf and the flower is moving and I'm moving and you need everything to be locked down to do video with, with macro. So, um, yeah, it's true. Another big thing, uh, you know, finally the, the thing that you'd, Done your video on is ProRes, Um, which the story is not complete yet. So you you know your response to it is kind of the initial dropping of it in the Filmic app. That they seem to jump the gun a little bit (laughs) in a way, like they were able to (laughs) access access it through the iOS update. And Apple's official support of it is coming soon. So this won't be the definitive conversation about it because obviously, seeing how Apple interprets it is going to have like a bigger overall effect on the industry. But we saw Filmic show us what it can be. What what did you think of uh, shooting ProRes?
1: Yeah, so I, I will say that, and obviously the source is filmic, so take that with a grain of salt, but they said that the actual image quality should pretty much be what the final result for whatever Apple implements into their stock camera app. Maybe they'll have different settings or something. But one, I was extremely stoked to see that they had the various flavors of ProRes. I know a lot of people were debating prior that, you know, there would be either a new type of ProRes or that it would just be a version of ProRes LT. But the fact that we got proxy LT um, and the regular 4.2.2 and then uh, HQ is just awesome. Uh, Again, my style is go big or go home. So I shot everything on HQ. And when I got the clips back on the computer and saw that they were all upwards of like 600 megabits per second compared to the normal video app in the HUVC um, regular mode is like anywhere from like 20 to maybe 80 if you're shooting 60 fps, and so that was a huge jump. And there was one specific shot of my nomadic bag where I zoomed in, it's like 250 percent or something, and just really saw the difference um, in it, and I was just blown away. and And so I'm a huge fan of ProRes. But there's a big but in there. The workflow is a nightmare just because of the file sizes. Uh, I shot the whole A-roll sequence um, on the phone using ProRes HQ. And for about 20-minute file, it was almost 90 gigs. And I shot over 300 gigs just doing that video. And so obviously, I was like, oh, this is why I bought the one terabyte phone. But that was only after four days in comparison to having, you know, years worth of, of photos and videos on there. And then uh, really the biggest hiccup is just transferring it. Um, the airdrop is is pretty much useless or it's a headache. And then over lightning, it kind of leads into the biggest disappointment of the phone this year of them not going USB Type-C still confuses me very much. But uh, not to get ahead of myself, the image of ProRes is awesome and I'm very excited for it um yeah what did you think about I don't know if you saw the actual samples I ended up uploading like 10 of the files to like frame miles so people could download like uh, the full res so they didn't get YouTube compression but have you had a chance to play or you earlier said you haven't had a chance to play with ProRes
0: yet. Yeah, I didn't shoot it. Well, so after I watched your samples of ProRes, I, I went out and watched any other videos out there because a few other people released example videos as well. So I saw as many as I could. Um, and again, I don't want to put in like final conclusions yet until I've, I've shot it myself. I just haven't installed it. Like I, I just haven't done it. Um, I will. <laughs> but it, I don't even know where to start. There's so many things to say about it here. Maybe I'll, like, first I'll start by extending an argument I was having on Twitter about uh, LT versus HQ. And I'll start that by explaining to anybody that doesn't know why ProRes is exciting is like it's the most common video codec standard in the professional world. Like it's it's what the most people are using for the most things, um, and it's really edit friendly. So Macs especially can like just blast through it. And you know when I remember when uh, the phone switched to HEVC uh, compression. They started to really slow down in editing. Like sometimes shoot, you know, editing your iPhone 12 footage would like crush a powerful MacBook Pro. That's not good. So shooting in ProRes, even though the files are bigger, they're going to edit faster. And then they're also just less compressed. So looking at other people's samples, the places I saw the best example, um, was actually in movement compression. So somebody else had something where they're walking by a chain link fence. So obviously a chain link fence is like updating very quickly. It's almost like static, right? Think of like the HBO logo or or waves in the water. Anything that is very noisy is is gonna need to be very compressed In a highly compressed format, and and you'll see so much of that mushiness that like softness is really exaggerated. Whereas in a still image of you know, me right now, like whatever, if nothing, if it's locked off, you're not going to see much changing, the compression won't be that strong. But once things started moving, it's like wow, the difference is enormous. Um, the LT versus HQ thing I was talking about, I think. The The way to go if you're going to shoot ProRes on an iPhone is 100% shooting LT, and I have a feeling it actually might come down to being proxy. I think that a lot of the reason that most people would choose ProRes HQ would be for color grading, so that you're, you have the most flexibility in post to adjust your image as far as you want. But typically on those other cameras, when you're shooting in HQ, you're shooting in a log format where you've extended the dynamic range by flattening the image and desaturating it, so you have all this room in a you know in a, like a 10 or 12 bit image in HQ 444. All this stuff lets you push and pull it really far. But that's because it's already log. So in in the context of an iPhone footage currently, what Filmix uh, current impl- implementation is is that it's still full contrast so you're not able to access that flexibility of a log image anyway so to me it's like you, sh- you shoot lt or possibly even proxy you're going to get 95 99 of that quality improvement switching away from the super compressed h265 compression of the default camera settings um and the files will be half the size of what you were shooting or in the case of proxy maybe even a little less than half i'm not totally sure and, and hopefully the proxy codec i think still can shoot 4k as well so you're going to yeah, get rid of all that motion compression and you're going to get rid of just like kind of that detailed 100 compression will go away you'll just like lose that flexibility in post
1: yeah and and i've started to um after the initial like i just want to check out what you know, the best technically HQ thing can produce. And I got all those comments of like, oh, well, you know, how does LT or proxy uh, come out in terms of storage? And and I understand shooting ProRes on Blackmagic cameras that, you know, you can, like you said, get 90% of the same image quality. And what the second thing that stood out to me, just even uh, just like the detail compared to the more compressed uh codec is the noise and going back to us talking about the ultra wide camera um i'll be curious once you actually test it out for yourself what i was noticing is there's the same amount of noise A sense ProRes, the post-processing it does the debayering or whatever the super nerdy stuff is process is so much better than other codecs um there is still a good amount of noise, but it is much better looking. It's it's closer to like the grain uh, mm-hmm. that we all like. It's still not great because you've reached the hardware limitation of a small sensor and small optics. But it definitely looks better on the ultra wide um, in low light situations just because the noise profile itself looks better um, than the very muddy kind of mushy. Kind of weird blended colors and and noise that um, the compressed codecs have. So um, and even in Patrick Tomas's video, he shot all low light samples um, that I posted earlier today. And the biggest thing I saw was the difference in the chroma noise. The noise on the ProRes actually looks like the shadows look like black rather than that like kind of tinted blue that can look very ugly. Um, so yeah. So even
0: in addition to detail. It's just a lot better noise as well. Well, actually, in speaking of chroma, wait, first thing, when you say noise, uh, that reminds me of last year when you shoot in raw in stills, um, that was the same difference that you would see. So typically, Apple's processing would aim for this like smoothness that would actually look less detailed and less sharp. But if you shot raw and let some of that noise continue to exist, you'd perceive the image as being sharper. Even though it was a bit noisier, um, I think it looked better. So I think maybe we're seeing something similar. Uh, But yeah, when it comes to like chroma sampling, what's going to be interesting about this, and actually a good reason to shoot HQ or, or even 422 that I think will actually get used by professional social media creators is there's a lot of examples where people are shooting on their phones and doing post-processing like green screen or uh, like a common uh, dance trend right now is people wear a single cut, like a green jumpsuit and then they change the color of it throughout. Anything like that is going to perform way better. Uh, Especially, especially the green screen. That's like the big one. That's one that we've done a bunch where uh, we were doing jobs last year where I was shooting on our big, Camera, I was shooting on like the uh, you know Ken C seventy or C two hundred to get twelve bit, so we could do green screen as good as we could. But then it's like I gotta make sure that the background is fully in focus. I've got to make it look like a phone because it was gonna be for social anyway. But now it's like, well, just shoot it on the phone, shoot it in ProRes HQ, and you're gonna be able to pull a perfect key off of it. Um, so I, I actually think this will get used. Like this is not just a novelty thing to make it like, oh, they're more professional. Like this will be used by professional content creators quite a bit, including me. So I, I do, I and do now think that, ProRes is going to be a thing.
1: And now that, uh, I know LumaFusion now updated to edit in ProRes. So anyone who's used to editing on whether on their phone, I think is pretty rare, but at least on an iPad or something. So as long as they can figure out that transferring a footage workflow which like you said the proxy or lt should be a lot smaller file sizes so hopefully faster and easier to transfer um then it'll be great and i i 100 agree that i don't think this was a gimmicky feature at all to me cinematic mode was it, it's not a gimmick mode i think it actually works really well but i think this is much more niche but useful in the pro market.
0: um, So Mm. it makes sense on the pro phones. You know what really sold me on cinematic mode being, being something that'll really get used actually was Jesse Driftwood, you know, been on the show a few times and just one of the most epic creators out there has traditionally shot a lot of his cinematic Instagram stories on bigger cameras which is super cool. It's like something I experimented with a few times and it give you this really unique look for a story that, you know, what's supposed to be a disposable 15-second clip looks like a movie and there's a shallow depth of field. But he shot some stories on his iPhone 13 the other day and they looked like a real camera. In stories, you can't tell like that all of the depth of field looks real. Um, especially yeah. if you turn it down a little cuz you'll find a, a little tip, I mean I said this in the video too, but if anybody is using the default, I think it defaults to like f2.8. That's way too blurry for a close up like a talking head or anything like that. You should be turning it down to like f8 or f9. Um and it still looks quite blurry like that and super realistic and I swear in Instagram stories nobody will notice. And people undervalue stories, reels, TikTok this is that's like half of what filmmaking is these days and people are going to use it and it's going to look way better than those fake blurs that were coming out of Samsung phones or out of like Instagram filters or any of that. This is, it's a totally different look from that. And so yeah, basically both of these things are reasons that now you don't need to pull out a big camera to shoot professional social media content because the the phone can now handle it itself.
1: It's true. I mean, When I went to Seattle last week, I literally brought my 50-pound bag with, you know, cinema cameras, cine lenses and stuff. And I pulled it out twice, I think. And it was actually only to shoot B-roll of the iPhone 13. So anytime we went on, like, a hike or, uh, again, to the Space
0: Needle or or something, I was like, I'm just going to bring the phone. (laughs) Yep. Well, turns out there's a lot to talk about for an uh, incremental upgrade. So uh, this this has been fun, and thanks for coming on, Michael. (laughs) Um, Anybody that isn't following Michael Tobin on on YouTube, you should right now. What's your actual YouTube address to make it super easy if people don't want to click the link in the description, which they should?
1: Uh, It's either at Initial Focus or slash Initial Focus for YouTube. So, yeah, super easy, pretty much everywhere. Cool. Thanks again, man.